This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash be here now today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash be here now. Hello and welcome to the Shakti Hour, a podcast on Ram Dass's Be Here Now Network, where I speak with women about their personal experience on the spiritual path. My name is Melanie, and today I'm sharing an interview with author Michaela Haas. Michaela and I met over a year ago at the Maui Ramdas retreat and spoke not long after that, and uh, these files disappeared and and I rediscovered them this week on a on a hard drive, and I'm so happy that they were found so I can share this conversation with you. Michaela is the uh, author of three books, Bouncing Forward, Dakini Power, and Crazy America. We spoke mostly about Dakini Power in this interview because we had met um, through Lama Siltram Alioni, another Shakti Hour guest. And so for those of you that joined in this summer with the Shakti Summer Reading and got into Lama's book, Wisdom Rising, you might find Michaela's book, Dakini Power, a nice compliment to that to learn more about Dakini wisdom and hear from several leaders uh, in Buddhism that are women um, over time that Michaela interviewed for that book. So please enjoy this conversation with Michaela Haas and please do continue to subscribe to the Shakti Hour on iTunes and leave us a positive review if you like what you're hearing. You can also join in on the Shakti Hour Patreon page at patreon.com slash Shakti Hour and help us to fund our upcoming sacred music series, which is going to be super cool uh, coming out next month, uh, along with some new and upcoming series we're producing on sacred earth and climate change and getting into some deeper issues around the feminine in spirituality as it's expressed in our world and our culture. Thanks so much for listening, and now please enjoy Michaela Haas. So yeah, so what was it that really was the motivation for creating this book, Dakini Power? What drew you into making an entire book? you know, around this subject? The motivation was because I went to study Buddhism in Asia, especially in India and Nepal, to learn the Tibetan language and learn Sanskrit and learn more about the philosophy and meditation. And after a few years of studying, I couldn't help but notice that all the teachers I met were men. And... It's often said, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism that there's really no difference between men and women when it comes to the spiritual path. But if that is true, well, hello, where were all the, the female teachers? So I met female translators and females, lots of female students. I met wonderful nuns, but on the throne in the monasteries and the teachers, for instance, at the library in Dharamsala, where His Holiness the Dalai Lama lives, uh, they were all male. So I started to seek them out. I started to look for them. And I found that, of course, they existed, but they're just not as much in the limelight. And part of that was maybe their own um, instinct to spend their time in retreat or focus on their own students. They didn't necessarily seek 
a lot of public attention. But part of it, I think, is also, you know, the structure. And anybody who's traveled through Asia knows that, um, you know, women just don't have the same place in society. And so, you know, that's a very interesting question. Well, is it different to be on the path as a woman or as a man? And I, I do think that it's really useful and helpful and inspiring to have female role models. And that's why I, I sought them out. And that's why I wrote a whole book about them. Because Dakini Power, in one way, it's dedicated to 12 women who were really instrumental in bringing Buddhism to the West. But also, I think it's really a, a sea change that's happening with more women teachers teaching in the West and in the East and inspiring different, you know, a different group of students also. Do you just, do you think that that has to do with an evolution of consciousness in general or the shifting of patriarchal systems or, or more and more students who are willing to ask that question? I mean, what, why do you think that that shift is, is happening now. For a lot of reasons. I mean, for once, a lot of the Asian teachers now teach in the West. And so they meet a lot of female students. And oftentimes, especially in Buddhism, a lot of the centers are run by women. It's women who organize everything. It's women who do the finances and the driving and the, you know, all of it. So I've met several Asian teachers, more traditional teachers who told me that it was actually in the West that they met very educated and eloquent female students for the first time. And <laughs> Tenzin Palmo tells the story when she got to present, you know, she's very engaged in the empowerment of nuns, when she got to present her cause for full ordination in, in Tibetan Buddhism, which doesn't quite exist yet, um, in, in Dharamsala to very to the heads of the, the different Buddhist lineages, um, different Tibetan Buddhist lineages, they actually said, wow, this is the first time we are meeting Western nuns who are so educated, completely fluent in the Tibetan language, so well-versed in philosophy. So I think because uh, a lot of the Tibetan nuns traditionally, they just did not have access to good education. And a lot of the nuns, actually, when I studied in Dharamsala, I was surprised how many Tibetan nuns were studying with me. <laughs> you know, beginner Tibetan, beginner Sanskrit, because they didn't get that education traditionally. And so it's changing because, the you know, women are getting more access to education and they are being more empowered. And I think it, it goes both ways. It, the, the traditional teachers can't help but recognize that. And in a way, they're also a little bit forced to recognize it because uh, women play such an important role in, in Buddhism and, and other spiritual traditions in the West. Right. So it, education is a huge part of it. The division of labor and you know the, the washing machine, <laughs> the vacuum cleaner, the the you know systems that were in place to to carry over some of the the roles that women were engaged in that took them away from education outside of the outside of the you know governing bodies and the you know thought systems that have have separated us so that's it's fairly, that and yeah. also you know a lot of the women i interviewed for dakini power some of them are traditional tibetans uh, a few of them did grow up in tibet but a lot of them are, are westerners and so you know, when they became nuns, uh, a lot of them didn't quite know what they were getting into. And then like Tenzin Palma tells the story, you know, when she realized that the nuns always had to sit in the back, no matter how senior they were or how accomplished they were. It's just the the youngest rookie monk would get to sit in front of the most senior, most accomplished nun. You know, as a Western woman who grew up in the West, they're like, well, hang on a minute. Why? <laughs> Why does that make sense? today. And uh, Tenzin Palma tells the story of, you know, when she first started studying in a, in a, a traditional monastery in India, the, the monks would get um, much more teachings and she would be excluded from some of the deeper um, conversations and teachings just simply for the fact that, that she was a woman. And I don't think it's a coincidence that she's the trailblazer now, you know, who started her own nunnery 
and is so active in advocating for the empowerment of nuns. It's almost like it took a Western woman who would, you know, who kind of refused to go along with the traditional seating arrangements that are really much more than just seating arrangements. It's really about access to the teachings and, and also the resources. We need resources to practice. So that she she embraced that role. I think it's kind of symptomatic. And she was actually the very, very first um, female Buddhist teacher I met when I was studying in Dharamsala. And she made a huge impression on me. Is she the one that, that talks about messing up as a woman? And how she really... Is that the... I, I had to written that quote down. She's the one, most people know her from Cave in the Snow. She's the one who spent 12 years meditating in a, in a cave in the Himalayas by uh, herself. Uh-huh. Uh, she's from London originally. Uh-huh. She's British and went there uh, as a young woman and fell in love with the Tibetans, started uh, helping with a refugee camp uh, in North India, and then met her teacher there, uh, to Rinpoche, and followed him and decided to take ordination. And she was one of the very first Westerners to take ordination as a Buddhist nun. And she lived, at one point, she lived in Kamtul Rinpoche's monastery with 300 monks <laughs> and describes that as much more challenging than anything else she had ever done. She says, spending 12 years in a cave was a piece of cake <laughs> compared to that, just for the fact that she, was, uh, she wasn't allowed to participate. So she felt very, very lonely despite living with hundreds of other people. And out of that experience came her um, activism to fight for the full ordination for um, Tibetan nuns. And that's something, you know, Buddhism always has this image in the West of being open and uh, everybody has uh, the same access. But traditionally, that's really not true. And so she started her own nunnery. And I I went there a few years ago and interviewed her there again for the book um, where she she only hires female teachers. So it's, you know, not uh, she, she... she uh, changed the traditional role model. She invites learned nuns to teach her nuns so that they see it's possible. Because oftentimes when you talk to the Asian nuns, they say, oh, yeah, of course men know more. And of course they're smarter. And of course they're more intelligent. And Tenzin Palmer says, of course they're not. They just were given more education. They just had more training. And you can do it too. Well, yeah. <clears throat> right, that belief system is within... So many of us still, yeah, regardless of gender. Well, hopefully in the West, not so much. But I've, I've come across it a lot in Asia, and I don't blame them. It's just what, what people know, but I think it's also time to change it. So backing up a bit, your, your story of how you actually came to Buddhism is quite interesting. Um, and just in this idea of, of reaching the, the throne, reaching the seat. Mm-hmm. Uh, your career, you had kind of reached a pinnacle moment in your career, as far as I understand your story. I'll let you tell it a bit more. And then from that viewpoint, we're able to look and see what was missing, maybe, or look and see where you had come from. What, what happened there? Can you tell us that story? <laughs> well, it's kind of funny because uh, a Buddhist teacher once told me that people either come to Buddhism out of suffering or out of happiness. And in my case, I'm a journalist, and I was quite successful early on. When I was in my early 20s, I already had my own TV show in Germany, and I had a great uh, job as a reporter for a nationwide newspaper. And uh, I was living in Munich at the time, and I loved all of it. And it was exciting, and I was busy and successful. But deep down, I was unhappy. I was really unhappy. And then there was this... um, moment that I will never forget when I actually fainted in my office at the news desk. Uh, To this day, we don't really know what happened exactly, but I I just got very ill very suddenly, and they had to call an ambulance and took me out on a stretcher. And everybody thought I was just overworked, and I thought I was overworked, and so I decided to take three months off and go travel. And I had always been interested in Buddhism, but more like, uh, you know, just reading books. I wasn't practicing meditation or uh, I didn't have a practice at the time. And uh, a friend of a friend said, oh, there's this kingdom in the Himalayas. It's called Bhutan. It's very hard to get into. 
And that intrigued me. And so I put that on my list and I went to Bhutan and just completely fell in love with Tibetan Buddhism, knowing nothing about it. And then I kept coming back and that's how I ended up studying in Nepal um, and in India. And I actually, I did return briefly um, to Germany, but then nothing could keep me there much longer. And I went back to Nepal and started studying there and actually sent a fax to my employer at the paper saying, I'm not coming back. I'm staying. (laughs) So I actually gave all that up and spent um, several years just studying and being in retreat and really immersing myself in, in the Buddhist tradition. And what was that like, that moment of sending that fax? Did you deliberate or contemplate on it? Or how did you come to that moment of, I'm letting go of this? <laughs> it was it was funny because much later I learned that uh, my boss at the time, who I'm good friends with now, I was kind of scared of his reaction because he had really mentored me and, and supported me and given me this great job. So that's why I sent a fax. It was a little bit cowardly because I was afraid of calling him and telling him directly. <laughs> but the fact that I had sent a fax, this was kind of before everybody had email. Um, it sparked rumors and the people at the paper thought, well, maybe she has taken a vow of silence. Maybe that's why <laughs> she didn't call. <laughs> so there were all these wild theories what was going on with me. And I didn't really know what was going on with me myself. I just knew that I had found something that was worth pursuing and that was more meaningful than my work at the news desk. Now, you know, fast forwarding uh, 25 years later, I'm still a reporter, I'm still a journalist, um, and I write books, but I do feel that it changed my trajectory in a way because I often try to write stories that have meaning or that make uh, you know, change the world for the better. It's kind of such a, you know, corny phrase, but that, I mean, you can be a journalist for many reasons. And I try to embody what I've learned in my Buddhist studies in my journalist work, even if I write about a topic that's completely different and has nothing to do with Buddhism, you know, um, well, in that am I moment, speaking kind you- words? Am I, am I doing something, uh, useful? That's really a guiding principle. Hmm. In that moment that you sent the the facts, did you were you looking ahead to any future, or did you assume you were going to stay there for? Did you have a timeline? Were you were you in time at all with this decision? Well, you know, when you're in your twenties, you don't really think that far ahead, right? <laughs> I wasn't thinking about <laughs> what I would pay my pension with, but um, I just felt like I had come home in Asia. I was just deeply intrigued by some of the Tibetan masters I had met. I knew that I wanted to learn what they knew. I wanted to go deeper with meditation. And I felt that the only way to do that for me at that time, I'm not at all saying that it has to be like that for everybody. For me at the time, I felt that I had to immerse myself. And I was very interested in practice, so I really wanted to do some longer retreats also. So I just followed my heart, and I've never regretted that. No, that seems to be a, a decent guide. It's it's interesting to me because in my 20s, I was just, I was so about the world. I only wanted to be out and with people and partying and socializing and, and, and to hearing your story and a lot of the stories of the people that are involved with Ramdas and Neem Karoli Baba and, and Lama Siltram, uh, the same, really was your 20s that you went deep into this um renunciant type path but it has another you know it has another exoticism to it. it has another you know you can accumulate spirituality just the same as you can worldly things but I, I just find it um, I find it really interesting uh, to well we still partied in Asia it's not that there were no parties <laughs> Right. Yes, there were times that were more austere, but <laughs> right. there right. was also quite a vibrant scene in, in India and, and Nepal, so it wasn't that there were no parties. But I think one of the reasons was because I had a lot of success very early on. I was like, well, why am I not happy? I have everything, okay? I'm, I earned good money. I had a job I loved. Why am I not happy? What's missing? And I couldn't pinpoint that. And when I met 
some of the Tibetan masters, it was the other way around. I'm like, well, these people have had such a hard life. They've lost everything. They had their families taken away from them, their homeland. Some of them had been in prison for many, many years. They'd been tortured. Why are these people so happy? What's their secret? Why are they... Um, why aren't they angry? I mean, I was really personally fascinated by some of the meditators I got to know and just marvel at their peace of mind. And it was obvious to me that my hectic news desk was the opposite of that <laughs> and that I had to leave it for a while in order to to learn what, what they practiced. Um, but it wasn't without difficulties. I think, you know, especially as a young Western woman going to Asia and studying there, you know, we talk, talked earlier about finding uh, women teachers and finding uh, female role models. I mean, there's, uh, I think there are a lot of challenges in ad adopting a, a totally foreign tradition and taking that as your own path. Right. And did you have a spiritual practice or a spiritual upbringing before that? Any beliefs? You said you had been looking through the books a bit about Buddhism, but as a child or earlier in your life? I was brought up Catholic, and I left the Catholic Church when I was 16, partly because when I realized, oh, w women can't become priests in, in this tradition, uh, you know, um, why, why, why don't women have the same rights? Um, I was very... Um, uh, I was uh, I was uh, quite engaged with feminism at the time and still am, of course. So that was one thing that really erupted me wrong in the Catholic faith. And I grew up in a very small Bavarian village, uh, very conservative. So it just became clear that I wasn't fitting uh, that mold. And I was always interested in Hinduism, in Asia, in Buddhism. And I had taken a first, uh, I went on a Buddhist retreat um, in Thailand um, when I was 21, and out of I, I thought it would be so fun to just go and sit in the jungle in a monastery for 10 days and meditate. And of course, it was hell because I had no regular practice at home, and to mm -hmm. just rip myself out of a busy life and a mm -hmm. busy career and go to Thailand and sit in the jungle for, for 10 days watching my breath. <laughs> I thought, well, how hard can it be? Well, it turns out it's pretty hard. <laughs> right. So that had been my only in-depth um, contact with Buddhism before. And it was a very challenging experience. So it was clear to me that if I wanted to do this, I had to devote myself to it and develop a more regular practice and go deeper with it. Yeah. And through all this time, was there a moment then, did you have any kind of similar moment when you had made the transition from journalist to spiritual seeker? Did you have a moment in that seeking where you wanted to give that up too? Did you have any dark night of the soul or enter a period with that where you wanted to go back? Oh, I want to go back or, or go somewhere else. <laughs> Yes, I could say that. Um, well, first of all, I got very, very ill after studying in Asia for two years. I got um, I got so ill that I was bedridden for eight months. Mm. And so to this day, we don't know exactly what happened. It was probably a mixture of food poisoning and a virus, but I had very severe chronic fatigue. And so I went back to Europe and uh, thinking I would get, you know, proper medical care there. But it was really, really hard um, because they couldn't quite find out what was wrong with me. And I was so extremely exhausted and, and ill, I often couldn't leave my bed. So that was really my dark night of the soul because by that time I had been studying Buddhism for a few years. And I found little support in the practice. And I think I made the mistake that a lot of um, people make when, you know, when we get first attracted to a different spiritual tradition, I was kind of a good weather meditator. Mm -hmm. um, I was looking for happiness and joy. And of course, that's, that's to be found in meditation, but also, you know, a lot of stuff comes up. And I wasn't really, um, I wasn't really equipped to deal with that yet. So, that was a real challenging period 
And then also, you know, partly through the research for Dakini Power and connecting with other teachers, I do find it very challenging to this day that also in, in you know, in Buddhist communities, uh, sexual abuse is happening. Um, unfairness is happening. I've always struggled with the strong hierarchy in uh, Tibetan Buddhist organizations. Um, and uh, there are, you know, some things that I've, that I've learned um, in, in some Buddhist communities about how money is used. It's so tempting to think, as I did when I first entered this tradition, that everything would be perfect and everybody would be kind to each other and be honest. And that's not the case either. So, yes, I did, um, I did encounter difficulties. And that's also, I think, partly why I wrote Dakini Power, because I wanted to speak to these women and find out how they had dealt with these challenges. Because mm-hmm. it was clear to me that I wasn't the only one. And so I wondered, well, how, how did they respond to, you know, finding out about sexual abuse within Buddhist communities? How did they deal with the somewhat unfair hierarchies that are still going on to this day. How do they stay on the path? Why are they not leaving? What can I learn from them? And I, I did find that. I found it very, very inspiring to, to talk to um, these female teachers who'd been on the path much longer than me and who are really, I think, honest and outspoken about their own challenges. Right, and while main, maintaining their devotion to their practice, and, yes. and and to their lineage. Mm-hmm. Right. Did you in, uh, befriend any uh, male students? Did you did you find did, did you befriend any any male teachers or students that you could communicate with as well? Did you? Well, I was married to one for five years, so. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean, my, I have many, of course, many male and and uh, and, and female Buddhist friends, and uh, a lot of them are teachers. Um, yeah, I I think men see it too now. You know that there is really a, a sea change that's happening in the Buddhist communities in the West, and I think they are actively supporting that. Mm. I think it's, you know, why wouldn't we? There's this beautiful potential of you know, millions of female Buddhists who are bright and active and motivated and why wouldn't we why wouldn't we give them the same access to the teachings and the practice so I think it's I think it's happening maybe not as fast as I would like but it's it's definitely happening right so you found you could not only communicate with them about your experience as a practitioner but that over time, it was growing that you could also communicate with them about your personal experience as a as a female practicing in this in this tradition. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, Lama Tsultra Malioni is uh, someone you've you've spoken with her for for your podcast also, and you know she's also someone who went deeper with Buddhism after realizing that there wasn't really a path for her as a mother within their tradition. Because I've heard male teachers say, oh, well, you know, you can practice when the children are grown up or stuff like that. And female teachers, I've never heard a female teacher say that. You know, they say you can always practice. You can practice with your child. You can practice at your job. You don't have to wait until you can be like the yoginis in the ancient books and go away to a cave uh, for many years. Mm. So to incorporate this, um, you know, motherhood and just, uh, you know, our femininity into into our path. That was the conversations with Sultan Melioni have been extremely uh, helpful and wonderful. And, and other teachers like Tenzin Palmo I already mentioned, or um, Joan Halifax is in the book, who's such a fierce uh, female teacher, very outspoken and so engaged in, uh, you know, um, hospice training and hospice work and, and being there for, for the sick and dying. So if I, I never like to generalize, but I think maybe, you know, women in Buddhism, they are more, um, what inspired me was that they are so willing to put themselves on the line and to, to be there for others and not to be afraid of starting something new 
like Lama Tsultamalione did with her wonderful um, Tara Mandala Center in Colorado, where she's really pioneering, you know, bringing in uh, Native, Amer- Native American traditions uh, together with the traditional Tibetan Buddhist mm. teachings. And that's such a question that I'm so interested in is, you know, how to preserve the core and the essence of these ancient mm. wisdom traditions, but also making them work for us now here. Mm. I live in Los Angeles now, <laughs> you know, such a huge city with so much traffic. So not all the not all the teachings that were written in, in, in caves thousands of years ago necessarily make immediate sense where I live now, but I have you know, I'm trying to make to make them make sense. Uh, and that's I think the path for us who've decided to follow this tradition mm. who is um, living under such different circumstances. Hmm. Yeah, you said you you bring up that word fierce, and that it seems to be part of the Tibetan Buddhist tradition. It is has it does draw such a clarity, and it is rigorous. Mm-hmm. And that the fierceness, it makes sense to me that then the that the sea change would be coming from this tradition, from the women in that tradition, because they're literally being trained to be clear articulate, uh, fierce, you know, warriors, you know. And that's what the Dakini is, and that's one of the reasons I called it Dakini power, because the Dakini is is somewhat a mystical figure, but also, you know, she is strong and sensual and fierce and powerful. Um, She doesn't take any nonsense. And a lot of the women I've, I've met for the book, they're like that. They're very compassionate. Very sweet, very smart, but I wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of them, to be honest, because they all they do have that fierceness and that power. Someone like Kondra Rinpoche, who is one of the youngest um, Tibetan female teachers, is teaching a lot in, in the West. She's fierce, and it's impressive because uh, we we don't often see that in a in a female spiritual teacher quite like that. Yeah, in your in your book, you write about the the Dakini. Ultimately, the Dakini defies gender definitions. To really uh-huh. meet the Dakini, you have to go beyond duality, uh-huh. right? Skygore, space dancer, the ethereal awakened ones have left the confinements of solid earth and have the vastness of open space to play in. Yeah, that's how she's defined. You know, she's this figure that you really can't pin down and all these definitions, you know, she's a, she's called a sky dancer, she's playful, she's uh, seductive, um, but she's also, you know, one of her main jobs is to cut through the ego and to cut through the nonsense. And so, you know, I mentioned I grew up in the Catholic Church and the only images of female practitioners you see there it's like the you know mother mary and the kind of very uh devout and demure uh personality right and so it was surprising in me uh, for me to discover that akini and to see that you know she's often depicted um bright red and naked um showing her breasts and her vagina in a kind of provocative way. So <laughs> that blew my mind at first, and I wanted to know more about, well, wh- what is this figure and what does she represent? Yeah. And there are so many levels to understanding her. So I called the book Dakini Power because on an outer level, we, you know, Dakini is a term of reverence for accomplished female teachers. So in that sense, it fits for the book. But it's so much more than that because the Kini practice is a practice where we work with our inner energies, with the breath and the chakras. But she's also on an innermost level, you know, she's really the nature of mind. She's our our innate wisdom. And in that sense, then she's genderless because we all have that, whether man or, or, or woman, we all have that deeper, the deepest wisdom in us. Right, right. And I and and part of how this is written here is she appears in female form, right? uh-huh, exactly. <laughs> so for each of us too, you know, we're appearing in the form that we're appearing in, you know, yeah. for our own karmic or you know personal journey, spiritual journey here. 
Yeah. And that, and that, um, you know, I do love this, the, I do love the Tibetan Buddhist iconography and all these different images and, and that kind of allows you to have a solid projection <laughs> of what it is, you know, a solid projected <laughs> teaching, you know, but it still is a, is a projection. It's still a, a creation to embody the teaching that is, as you say, this innate, innate wisdom that we each have, male, right. female alike. Yeah. At the other day, we're working with our own minds. Right. Um, but I think it's interesting because one of the reasons that, like Tenzin Palmer says, she couldn't really get too upset about being discriminated against as a woman because we've all been men and women many, many times in past life. So it's just, you know, in this life, we, you know, we manifest as women, but in the next life, it might be different again. So to accept this, you know, ever-changing fluidity in a way, uh, I thought that was, you know, to have that awareness as a, as a female teacher to know it matters, but then on another level, does it really matter? Yeah. Well, so what do you think about this idea then too, about, uh, um, about the intuitive force, this idea that the, that the feminine gets the understanding in a flash and mm -hmm. that the masculine gets it through a series of a linear series of unfoldings. Yeah. How, how does that, how does that sit for you in your own experience? And <laughs> in, in... I love all these stories, you know, that's, uh, Tenzin Palmo talks about it like that. Women get it in a flash. Um, and that's a lot of the traditional stories with the Dakini have to do with that, that very often in the traditional books, there would be this scholar who's been studying the philosophy for many years or even decades, who's this renowned author, you know, nowadays we would say professor. And then he goes to the market and encounters this ugly old woman and she provokes him and uh, just completely blows his mind. And then he has to question himself, well, how much do I really know? Do I know the words and the texts or do I really, <laughs> have I really understood the wisdom? So many, many times the Dakini will appear to challenge our more rational notion of the world and she will tear that apart. Or very often the Dakini will appear at times of obstacles when we're stuck and uh, we need to move forward or break through uh, some obstacles. And so that's where the fierceness comes in. So she's often depicted with a knife in her hand that cuts through ego clinging or cut through. Because I think especially, um, you know, speaking for myself, I can get quite caught up in you know, logical questions or in, in uh, question of, if I love philosophical questions. And the Dakini always brings it back to, well, what's real? What do you really, um, what do you really take for yourself? How do you make this work? And that's one of her main um, functions I think that I enjoy is to bring out the, you know, sometimes it's called crazy wisdom, but just the unconventional aspect that uh, the Buddhist tradition also has. Right. It's a, such a nice balance. We've got uh -huh. these structures here and then we've got this wild card. Yeah. That's going to, that's going to give it back. Basically it's going to hand it back to you now, now back to you <laughs> mm -hmm. from the journalism desk, from the back to you. Yeah. Here you go. How are you going to handle this? How are you going to respond to this moment? Yes. Yes. You've got your training. Yes. You've got your practice, <clears throat> you know, and that's, and that's such a, that's such a gift. You know, those things that we try to avoid, all the chaos that we try to avoid and plan and organize our lives around, that these, these moments of, of chaos, of unpredictability, of fierceness, they're actually, you know, I hate to say this to call this into my life right now, <laughs> but they're actually these, you know, these moments of great awakening, these moments of really drawing the energy into the deepest self. Yeah. The potential, yes, it, potential, there are potential opportunities for that <laughs> to happen and to greet those with, uh, with that, um, you know, with a warrior's ship. I don't know why I keep saying, I don't think there's anywhere in your 
texts that you talk about warriorship, but just this idea, the way you were kind of painting all these different teachers and the fierceness and the stability. I keep seeing this idea of the warrior. And if you face that, you know, you're, you're, you're ready for whatever it might be. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So I think the Dakini gives, gives, especially women, the permission, so to speak, not that we need it, but sometimes we do need it, permission to be strong and permission to be outspoken, permission to be unconventional, permission to cut through. And yes, I think it is often in our darkest hours when we are confronted with a situation where we don't know what to do, where, uh, where we find our, our deepest wisdom. And, um, you know, after Dakini Power, I wrote a, a book about post-traumatic growth using what I've learned on the Buddhist path about dealing with obstacles in a, in a more secular context about how we can use challenging situations to become more compassionate rather than become angrier, to reach out more to others rather than closing down. What are to, a few techniques you, you kind of, that bridge that for you? Well, um, with the, my interest in post-traumatic growth came from my encounters with Buddhist masters who had been through extremely challenging experiences in Tibet, mostly, or as refugees. And, you know, in Tibetan Buddhism, there's a lot of training, mind training, about say something like, when you encounter difficulties, rejoice. Or the Dalai Lama says, your enemy is your best teacher. And that sounds great, <laughs> But when this shit really hits the fan, that's not what I or most people are thinking. <laughs> We're like, just how can I make this go away? And so to work with that mind training, um, I don't know how people do it without meditation. I don't know how people do it without mindfulness training, without loving kindness practice without self-compassion. And this is where, for me, Western psychology and my Buddhist training come together. And I was floored when I went to the American Army and went to their resilience boot camp training and found out that every single soldier today in America learns mindfulness meditation. Because the Army has learned about all these studies that are available now, how much meditation helps. Helps mm-hmm. our resilience, helps staying focused, helps staying calm under stress, helps healing trauma. And so that's my favorite technique, so to speak, is, uh, is mindfulness meditation, especially with that aspect of, of compassion and loving kindness. Right. And that's a, that's a daily practice so that when these moments or weeks, or months, or years of challenge come by, we've built up a, a reserve of time, of yes. that experience. A reserve of strength, because um, I've learned that resilience is not something we're born with. It's a, like a muscle that we can train in, just like, like mindfulness, or wisdom, or compassion. These are all things that uh, require our cooperation. <laughs> they require our our training and commitment, and and that's really my favorite thing to do now is to you know to bring these these mindfulness teachings to an an audience that's not even necessarily Buddhist. It's just people who who need some calmness and wisdom in their lives, or who are beating up on themselves for for reasons that are. Maybe not even obvious to people around them, but uh, I think especially, you know, living in L.A., being hard on ourselves or uh, thinking we have to be perfect, it's so prevalent. And so I, I enjoy to, uh, I enjoy so much that I have this training, uh, having spent years um, studying Tibetan Buddhism and having that meditation practice to, to counterbalance that. Right, and finding a way to offer it to people uh, where they are. Yes, exactly. Yeah, there really is so much compassion. I'm learning, and I don't know much about Buddhism, but I'm learning in this, in speaking to different Buddhists and getting deeper into this podcast and reading more materials around it, that the compassion aspect, the fierce compassion of I'm going to help, like I'm here to compassionately 
invite you into this practice. Mm-hmm. It's so, yes. it's so, you know, you said the structure and the hierarchy and it's so intense, you know, mm-hmm. initiation into this thing and you can't do this chant and this without this to the hearer and the teacher. <laughs> but on the flip side of that, what it seems to engender in those that do the practice is a desire to truly meet people where they are. Yes, that and also, you know, the self-compassion. <laughs> it happens again and again when I teach loving kindness. People find it quite easy to practice loving kindness for others. Hmm. But when we start with loving kindness for ourselves, people have like, whoa, really? Can I do that? <laughs> people have huge problems with that. Much easier to send love and compassion to other people uh, often than to send it to ourselves. <laughs> hmm. So I've become quite... Um, quite engaged with the, you know, self-compassion community and having that as a place to start. Because that was another thing that so impressed me with the Tibetans was that they didn't have um, that self-contempt that so many of us have here in the West. They, um, they are okay with themselves. They are, <laughs> um, they like themselves. And here in the West, I mostly meet, uh, people or I mostly have clients who hugely struggle with their own self-image and who speak to themselves in such harsh tones they would never speak like that with anybody else. So I think particularly in the West, this is a really good place to start. Well, with that, um, what would you offer to uh, women and girls on the spiritual path as a piece of advice, maybe just surrounding that, that self-compassion or Yes, self-compassion for sure. But I also think I really want to encourage especially women to stay true to themselves and not to – one of the things I found so interesting in interviewing these 12 Buddhist teachers, these 12 amazing women, was that they all – almost all of them, maybe all of them, you know, when they first encountered the Buddhist tradition, they really tried to fit in. They tried to (laughs) – act as, you know, demurely and keep their head down and just um, embrace that tradition and that culture. And sooner or later, all of them came to understand that that didn't really work for them. That might have been, you know, a a good attempt at first, but that's just not who they were. And so uh, all of them had to find a way of staying true to themselves and not denying their own strength, um, in order to stay on the path. And I think that is a balance because in one way, you know, we do want to trust our teachers and we do want to follow. There's always a cultural element that comes with it when we are interested in a, in a tradition that has such a different cultural background, right? So to kind of divide that up and differentiate between what's the culture and what's the actual bones uh, of, of the, of the practice that took, all of them, and it took me, you know, years to figure that out. Well, who am I on this path? Who am I on a path in a tradition that is hierarchical, but I don't do well with hierarchies? So how can I be respectful without um, denying myself, you know, without denying who I am? So I hope that the the features in Dakini Power are encouraging for people, not just women, but you know, because it mainly, it features female teachers, mostly women read it, um, it's to encourage them not to give up when when they are told to stay down or not to shut up when they are um, told to sit in the back or uh, when they're denied teachings. And to also think, you know, to, to build a community uh, where, where we're there for, for each other. And there are some very wonderful um, communities of female practitioners now, not only nunneries, there's some wonderful nunneries that, that have been started now in America, but not just nunneries, just in the Buddhist centers also. I think the, the women groups where women talk about what it's like to be on the path for them and what are the, the challenges we share as women, I think it's hugely inspiring and helpful. That's great. Yeah, community and I love this idea of I can remain engaged, respectful, and hold my own truth in this path. Right. Yeah. Yes. 
And if I need to call on some Dakinis to help me in a time when, <laughs> when I'm, when I'm uh, inclined to hold my tongue when I want to speak or, or, you know, these different things that, that, that this community, this book you have here, the women that are in it, that there's people that have been through this that can also come in and support, support me as I stay true to my own way of being. Yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as I think on a larger level, you know, to this day, Tibetan uh, women cannot get full ordination. And that's, I think, something where I'm hoping to inspire other women in the West to join their effort in getting equal rights. And it starts to happening, but it hasn't quite happened yet. So, um, you know, the still a lot of the, the female practitioners in Asia, they live and study under conditions that are way worse than their male counterparts. And that's something where, as a, as a woman in the West, where we simply do have more resources, I think these women need our support. And I, I want to encourage people to look into that, to find out about it. There was one of the very first things I noticed on this first trip in Bhutan that I mentioned earlier was that, you know, there were huge monasteries, like palaces with enormous libraries. And then we would do like a, a six-hour uphill track to a tiny little monastery in the middle of nowhere that had like three books and no good teacher, and where the women didn't even have enough to eat. So that's still going on. So they need us <laughs> and to speak up for them and to shine a light on these things that are still going on today. Great. And do you have, I feel like there's a link to that on your website or ways to, to help contribute to that? Am I wrong about Many, that? Yeah. yeah. On dakinipower.com, there is a, a section on, on how to help. And a lot of the teachers I, I portray in Dakini Power, they've started uh, initiatives like Tencent Palmo has her own, you know, fundraising for nuns. Carmel Exitsomo, uh, who's uh, actually from Malibu, where I live now, she's, uh, she's uh, the head of Sakya Dita, the worldwide organization for Buddhist women. They have lots of projects in pretty much every country where there are Buddhist women to support their studies and their practice. So yes, um, if you go to dakinipower.com, you find information about various initiatives to support female practitioners in those neck of the woods that don't have as much support. Fantastic. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Time can feel like it's in short supply. Between work, family, and friends, there's very little time left just for you. What would you do with an extra hour in your day? What's important to you? Therapy can help you find what matters to you so that you can do more of it. It's a great way to increase self-awareness, build a greater sense of purpose, deal with overthinking, and more. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash BeHereNow today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash BeHereNow.